Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Rob Bowman, an expert on cults and heretical Christian sects. He's also a biblical scholar who has, since 1984, written 14 books and dozens of articles defending the truth of Christianity against error. Rob, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. Good to be with you as well. Uh, You've invested many, many years in research and writing now on topics of heretical forms of Christianity and cults, and I know that's a big issue a lot of students face when they head off to college, so love to pick your brain for the next half hour, 45 minutes or so uh, to to learn what we can from you on this topic. So, So first, tell us how you got interested in this whole world of cults and heretical forms of Christianity. Well, we'd have to go back quite a ways because when I was uh, still a teenager and a very new Christian, I started talking with Jehovah's Witnesses. And at this point, my faith wasn't particularly well developed because I was a, a new Christian. There was still a lot of learning to do. And I met some Jehovah's Witnesses on the street and I would sit in their home for a couple hours at a time, uh, once a week for about three months. And they really gave me a tumble. I I did not know nearly enough. How old are you at this time? 18 or 19. Oh, wow. Okay. I was in college. Did you meet them on campus? Were were they uh, present there? No, no, no. Some Jehovah's Witnesses came to our door at home, Mm. and my mother shooed them away, and I ran up the street after them and because I was interested in I had some of their books, but I had never met a Jehovah's Witness that I knew of and uh, was interested in talking with them. And we ended up having about a dozen of them gathered around me talking to me, and they decided they were going to hand me off to an experienced, uh, more knowledgeable couple. And so I met with this couple, and we started getting into it. And we had some interesting conversations about a number of issues. and. Really, one of the the big issues that came up at the time was whether Jesus had risen bodily from the grave. Mm. And that I was really sure about, uh, that the New Testament was very clear that Jesus' physical body came back to life in immortal form, but nevertheless came back to life. Mm-hmm. And they don't believe that. They, right. they think Jesus' body was probably dissolved into gases and Mm-hmm. He was recreated as an angelic being. Right. So it took quite a while for me to come to the point of concluding that they just were not the true religion that they claimed to be. And this is at a point where I really didn't know very much about them, but just in doing a little bit of reading finally and, and studying uh, the Bible, I did a lot of studying of the Bible that semester. I don't know how I did in my classes, but <laughs> okay. uh, so, I, I mean, I, I survived, but <laughs> I, I was really very motivated to learn this stuff. And so I eventually came to the point of of deciding that they did not have the truth as they claimed. And it just seemed after that, that one thing led to another. I kept having opportunities to uh, run into Jehovah's Witnesses and um, in particular, uh, just seemed to be providentially uh, ordered that I kept running into them. <laughs> and so eventually I got into my first uh, ministry position after my master's degree was finished at uh, the Christian Research Institute back in the Walter Martin days. Mm-hmm. So I, I really have not looked back since then. Uh, almost all of my work experience has been in this area of apologetics and discernment. I really don't see myself primarily, and this will be funny because I have did have a reputation and still do as someone who's written a lot on Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I really don't see myself primarily as a countercult ministry person. I do countercult ministry. Uh, I do research and writing supporting countercult ministry, not just with Jehovah's Witnesses, but with Mormonism and a number of other groups. But I really see myself primarily as a biblical scholar, applying the, the, the tools and, and knowledge of that field to apologetics, including especially defending 
the historic interpretation of the Bible against the use and abuse of the Bible by groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians, progressive Christians are now on my hit list, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so on. And so that's really been my my area of interest is how do these different groups use the Bible? How do they interpret it? How do they augment, supplement, complement, or replace it? <laughs> mm-hmm. And how do we respond to that? And so that's been a lot of the work that I've done. Mm. Uh, my doctoral dissertation was on the Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon. Hmm. This has been my lifelong work, I guess, has been dealing with this kind of issue, although I do more general apologetics as well. And I'm currently the president of a ministry that specializes in this area. It's called the Institute for Religious Research. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, we have a website, irr.org. And it has a lot of resources on Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Great, great. We'll make sure that's in the show notes. Uh, And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show on this is because of your ability to engage the biblical text in relationship to these cults. Because as has often been offered as an analogy, you know, those who are experts in identifying counterfeit currency are also experts in understanding what the real thing looks like so that they can spot the the counterfeit. Yes. And I think it's the same here. If you have a deep understanding of the biblical text, you have a, a special ability to call out, wait a minute, that's not right. That's off base. And see where even though it might be in fancy wording or made to sound really good. Ultimately, what the cult is sharing is contrary to biblical truth. And you've got the expertise by your background to be able to help us see and identify those kind of things. That's that's what I want to talk about. So I appreciate you sharing that background. Well, thank you. So get us started by giving some definitions. Sure. Uh, what is a cult? Uh, maybe as, as as a starting place. Sure. Well, the word cult is a tricky word because uh, it has had several usages throughout church history and even in the last couple hundred years. Currently, the situation is the term tends to get used in two different senses. One is a secular sense of identifying a group that is typically a religious group or has some kind of religious or philosophical basis. Okay. Uh, that operates like a religious group, at least. But this group is regarded as uh, sociologically, psychologically, or even legally off base. Mm. It's destructive to human relationships. It breaks up families, or it's psychologically uh, warping people's perceptions of the way things really are mm. and causing them to have problems in their life as well as in their relationships. In some extreme cases, as you know, cults have engaged in criminal activities as a group or, you know, perhaps leadership. Mm -hmm. And of course, there have been the really tragic cases, a few cult groups where there have been mass suicides Mm -hmm. or mass deaths caused by one reason or another. Uh, Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, uh, Branch Davidians at Waco, Mm -hmm. lots of people died in those situations. The worst one was Jonestown, close to a thousand people. So that's one use of the term cult. By this definition, perhaps uh, among the best known currently operating religious groups that many observers, uh, journalists, uh, scholars uh, have identified as a cult would be Scientology. Mm-hmm. But there, there are a lot of groups that could fit into this category. They don't have to profess to be Christian groups. They don't have to profess to believe in God. They don't have to have a, a well-developed theology. They could just be you know, some kind of ideologically driven sect or group where typically loyalty to the group and or its leader is the paramount virtue, the paramount principle. Uh, you've got to do what you're told. Mm. You've got to do everything possible to make this person look good or to support them financially or whatever it might be. And, you know, of course, 
this is always a distortion of a good idea. So we should support people that help us, that lead us, that teach us. We should follow good rules. But these get warped or distorted or exaggerated or radicalized in such a mm-hmm. way that people are no longer acting in their best interest or the best interest of their families or whatever it might be. Right. Uh, so I just want to make this clear because many people get confused or they deliberately confuse the issue in some cases by saying, well, you're not telling me that it's a bad idea to follow the the rules of a person's religion. Don't you do that? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if your religion is a rule-based religion, uh, that isn't necessarily a bad thing sociologically speaking, theologically it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, if your religion is rules-based and those rules are antisocial, they are psychologically manipulative, they distort the way people live and make it so that they're not doing something that's in their best interest, then it gets to be a problem. Mm. So you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to this and say, no rules, you know, no leaders. No, we're not doing that. Uh, but uh, when these things get out of whack, uh, then in this uh, secular sense, as I'm calling it, you've got a cult. Mm-hmm. But evangelical Christians in particular commonly use the term cult in a what I would call a theological sense, mm-hmm. which is to describe or to label a group that professes to be Christian professes to follow Jesus Christ, uh, very often, typically, not always, but typically claims to believe the Bible is the Word of God, Mm -hmm. and yet it radically departs from Orthodox Christian doctrine as taught by Roman Catholics, Evangelical Protestants, Eastern Orthodox Christians, etc. In other words, is this not Oh, uh, you disagree with the Baptists on something. You're a cult. Mm-hmm. No, it's got nothing like that. Nothing like that. In other words, they 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 disagree with you know the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the core doctrinal commitments of the Church historically, right? Yes. In very many cases, they have a completely different worldview. Now, what gets tricky about this is they'll very often use the same language as in the Bible or in historic Christianity. So, for example. Mormons, if you read through the Apostles' Creed to them, they'd say they agreed with the whole thing. They wouldn't see anything wrong with it. Hmm. I've had Mormons tell me they agree with all but one word of the Nicene Creed. Really? Yeah, that's the word homoousios of one substance or one Mm -hmm. essence. Jesus being one substance or essence with the Father. Yeah, they disagree with that. Mm -hmm. But they say they agree with everything else, which... I'm not sure if they really understand the Nicene Creed if they say that. Hmm. But why is this possible? Because they use biblical-sounding language in unbiblical meanings. So, for example, Mormonism affirms that they believe in God Almighty. Good, but what is God Almighty? Who is God Almighty? Well, in Mormon theology, classically, God Almighty, the Father, is a being who used to be a mortal man like us on another planet, on another Earth-like world, and he became a god, and he's the god of this world. He's our god and our heavenly father. But, you know, there there would have been a heavenly grandfather before him, right? Mm. And by the way, heavenly father is married. He has a wife. That's our heavenly mother. And we are his spirit offspring who came into Uh, life as spirit beings in heaven before we came to the earth, and we can become gods like them and share the same nature, the same powers and attributes that they have. Well, now it turns out that the meaning of what they're affirming is radically different, Mm -hmm. drastically different from what we find in in the creeds as understood by the people that wrote the creeds, as understood by Christians of all denominations for the past 1500, 1800 years. And more fundamentally, contrary to clear biblical teaching on God as eternal and. Right. Yeah. So Isaiah 43 10, Yahweh says, Before me there was no God formed, and there'll be none after me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was no grandpa God that was the father of our Heavenly Father. God doesn't have any other gods before him. There will be no gods after him in Isaiah. 
for example, there are many places uh, where Isaiah strongly criticizes the idea that there's any other God. Mm-hmm. At one point in Isaiah 44, Yahweh says, is there any other God? I don't even know of any. That's Isaiah 44, verse 8. So even God doesn't know of any other God. So this isn't like, well, there's no other gods for us right now on the earth. You know, no, no, no. Even Yahweh does not know of any other gods. Yeah. So theologically, a cult is a religious group that professes to be Christian, to believe in Jesus, and typically accepts some of what Christians historically have thought about Jesus and about God, but then they radically depart from the biblical truth about these matters in some very important ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's more subtle than what I've just given as an example sure, in Mormonism, sure. but mm-hmm. nevertheless, that's what defines a cult in this theological sense. Okay. More technically, maybe they're heretical forms of Christianity, right? Right. I actually don't like using the term cult in a theological sense, Mm. because I think most people, when you say a group is a cult, they're going to think you're talking about something like Jonestown, even if you're not. Uh, So I prefer to use the term heretical sect or heretical group, and it really does mean the same thing, Mm -hmm. at least in the way I understand the terminology. Heretical simply means uh, that so far off doctrinally from what the church historically uh, teaches, that it creates a de facto division between Christians and this group, because for Christians to remain faithful to what they know Scripture teaches on the subject, they can't accept or have fellowship with people that are teaching to the contrary. Right. It's not because we don't like them or because we're being nitpicky, but because uh, if the church doesn't stand for something, it'll fall for anything. Mm, mm-hmm. and so we've got to take a stand for what we know is the truth. And this isn't taking a stand for our latest pet theory, but taking a stand for truths that have been taught by Christians throughout the world for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So they're well-tested, battle-tested, culture-tested. That is, they passed muster in very different cultures, mm-hmm. have accepted these doctrines. Another common misconception is this is the imposition of some kind of Eurocentric worldview. Mm. No, this is something Christians have believed, whether they were in the Western Hemisphere or the Eastern Hemisphere, whether they were in Europe or South America or Australia or where it doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter. And so those are the things that we're treating as the essentials Mm -hmm. that cannot be compromised by false doctrine. And a heretical religion is a religion that has embraced false doctrine as guiding principles of their own group. So this mm-hmm. we're not talking about an individual. Uh, now we're talking about a group that as a whole says, yes, this is our position, and the position is drastically wrong. Well, I think it's really important to make that distinction uh, between definitions that are based on sociology and definitions that are based on theology, because often people do say, well, a cult has certain features. They do kind of weird things over here. Um, And while that's true, there are some Christian denominations that do really weird things, right? And some might say, boy, that's, that's a cult. But they, they affirm the core biblical commitments codified in the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. So by a sociological definition, you might get there where, yeah, this is a cult, but it's really not. On the other hand, I think there probably are, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there are probably some some true cult or, or heretical Christian groups that seem to have very normal practices. So sociologically, they look like any other Christian denomination. Right. But when you actually press into what do you believe, they don't believe the core doctrines of the faith. And, and so they would be defined as heretical groups or, or, or cults in the broader you know, nomenclature, right? Right. It is possible to have groups that sociologically don't fit the definition of a cult at all, but theologically they do. Now, any group that embraces heretical doctrine tends to have that leach out into every area of their doctrine and practice. Okay. So it does tend to result in some 
aberrations of uh, practice uh, as well as doctrine. But uh, generally speaking, these are two overlapping categories. Got it. If I could use Mormonism as an example again, sure. not to make it sound like that's the only thing we should talk about, but Mormonism in the 19th century clearly fits the definition of a cult in the sociological sense. They're practicing polygamy uh, contrary to the law. Polygamy in and of itself, you know, you might not say is a is a cultic practice, but having your leader secretly be wed to 30-plus women, including teenage girls and married women and so forth, and, and lying about it, yeah, that's cultic behavior. And that's just one example in Mormonism of the 19th century uh, of a deviant behavior uh, that would mark them as a cult in a sociological sense. Today, no. The LDS Church today is just about as American as apple pie. They emphasize strong families. They do not practice polygamy. There are polygamous groups, and if the LDS Church got the legal grounds to reinstitute it, they probably would frankly. But nevertheless, the way they behave is generally, they're very law-abiding, they're very participatory in civic affairs, in even governmental affairs, uh, in the arts. I mean, they're not a cult in the sociological sense now. Do they still have the leader principle? Yes, they do. Uh, You basically follow the prophet. And you could say there's some cultic leftover elements in it because of that. But it's nothing like it was in the 19th century. They have remodeled themselves. They have refashioned themselves to become much more culturally mainstream. Mm. Uh, So religions can change, and they can become more or less cultic in the sociological sense. They can also make changes in the theological sense. Some groups that were very heretical in the past completely have changed themselves into evangelical denominations. The classic example now is the Worldwide Church of God. Right. Founded by Herbert W. Armstrong. Armstrong taught uh, all kinds of crazy theology, heretical theology, no question about it. After Armstrong died, the person that took over from him, Joseph Tkach, gradually, uh, but systematically dismantled Armstrongism in the religion. After he passed away, his son took over, and they don't even have the same name now. It's, uh, I think, called Grace Communion International. Hmm. They changed the name because they wanted to take it as far away from Armstrongism as possible. Yeah. So it's no longer an Armstrongite group, even though that's how it started. So things can change. Groups can also go the opposite direction. They can start off quite sound or orthodox, maybe with just a a wrinkle here or there, and then things can get worse and worse. So, Give us an example of that. uh, In a a sense, Mormonism is another example here of this principle, because when it started off, Joseph Smith taught that there was one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, as he put it, uh, that God had always been God from eternity past to eternity future. He was God, the only God. Wow. And that their understanding of salvation was more or less a warmed over Methodism. Mm. Before he died, 15 years later, he was teaching that there were many gods. God the Father had a God before him. Uh, you could become a God just like he is, instituting temple worship with baptisms for the dead and 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 all the rest of it. So it changed dramatically in 15 years. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it was peachy theologically when it started off, but it was a lot better when it started. The problem was it started off with this idea that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And, you know, if you're going to be a prophet of God, every once in a while you need to come up with something new. Mm. (laughs) There's a little pressure on you to keep producing evidence that you're a prophet, that you're getting words from God and revelations from God, and that you can therefore be trusted as a prophet. You've got this revelation pipeline that's coming down to you from God. And so Joseph kept changing the theology without admitting that they were changing anything. And Mm. 15 years later, when he died, it was a completely different religion. Mm. Okay. 
Yeah, I can see that. So I want to ask you a question about leadership because it's come up a few times. I hope you'll indulge me to use the word cult in the more narrow sense, even though sure. you made a great distinction. It's just a mouthful to say no uh, say all of that. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so with that understanding, you've made the point that cults will have a leader, often a very inviting personality that people like to be around and is 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 very energizing. But there are a lot of other groups that would look to a leader who has a lot of authority, you know, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church with the Pope, or uh, there's a lot of, let's say, Southern Baptist churches where the the senior pastor is the authority and 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 kind of calls the shots and sits in all the committees and and is in all the decision making and and right. and so right. you know how do you parse that out? Those aren't cults. But they share that kind of sense of, hey, there, there's this leader that God has anointed that we follow. Yeah. So having a leader to whom you defer on decisions about, you know, what the church is supposed to be doing or whatever is, uh, is a normal thing in most religions and in most forms of Christianity. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Where this gets out of whack is when the leader exercises his or her authority in a very autocratic, dictatorial, and even totalitarian fashion. And what I mean by that is the member of the religion is taught that everything is about following the human leader. Everything in life is about serving that person or providing for that person or supporting what that person says. Every decision has to be approved by this individual. You can't get married without that person's approval. You can't take a job in another city without that person's approval. You know, this kind of excessively over-the-top kind of mm. authoritarian style of leadership on the part of a leader is when you start looking at something that's very cultic. Or when the leader says, you should believe this because I'm telling you, because God has told me and now I'm telling you, and so you're getting it straight from God through me. And so now you're being asked to submit to this person's teaching simply because he, or as I said, she, says you should. Let me anticipate a, a possible objection here. Didn't the apostles in the New Testament have that kind of authority? Or didn't the prophets in the Old Testament have that kind of authority? Uh, they had authority in that they spoke from God. They did not say, you should believe this because I'm a prophet. Paul never said, you should believe what I'm saying because I'm an apostle. He gave them scripture to back up what he said. He gave them facts to back up what he said. Luke reports that when Paul and his companion, I think it was Silas at the time, were in Berea and they were preaching to them, that the Berean Jews were more noble-minded than the Thessalonian Jews. Because the Berean Jews gladly listened to what Paul and Silas were saying and studied the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Luke there presents Paul, an apostle. He's already told us about Paul's calling to be an apostle directly from Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He presents Paul as somebody who is seeking to persuade people from scripture that what he's saying is true based on the facts that he is rehearsing to them about Jesus and comparing that with Scripture. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, this is just before that. Uh, I just quoted Acts 17, 11. In Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, when he went to uh, Thessalonica, he was seeking to persuade people from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul never went anywhere, and he never says in his epistles. You should do this or believe this because I say so, uh, because I'm an apostle, so shut up. You know, uh, nor do the, the prophets in the Old Testament talk that way. So when a modern leader who really isn't an apostle or prophet talks that way, they're way out of line. That's helpful. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students, 
that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to college faith. So there's so many groups like this on college campuses these days. Let's think a little bit about how students can identify them. What are some of the things the students ought to have their antenna up for to to realize this group that wants me to come to their Bible study or come to their social that they're having might be uh, might be one of these groups that I ought to I ought to stay away from. Yeah, well, I don't think you'll find too many Jehovah's Witnesses coming onto a college campus. You're much more likely to find Mormons. Uh, but you're also going to find representatives of other groups that aren't even necessarily Christian-based, but are based on another religion, like the uh, popularly known as Hare Krishnas. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to come on college campuses quite a bit. I don't know if they're doing that now. The International Society for Krishna Consciousness is their technical name. Yeah, I've sure seen them. Yeah, there are groups like that that will show up on campus. It's kind of hard to miss them because they dress differently. <laughs> right. and, you know. Sure. But uh, most cults don't issue badges to their members saying, I'm a cult member, you know, join me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it works. Uh, so it, some discernment is needed. And so I guess what I would say is if you're on a college campus and you encounter somebody representing a particular religious group or what appears to be a religious group, you could just ask them, could you tell me what the name of your church is? You like, are you part of a denomination or how do you describe your religious belief? Do you consider yourselves Christians? And then if they say yes, they're they're Christians, then you can ask them questions about what they believe. Is your group the only true church? By the way, this might be the quickest way mm. to flush them out, if I can put it that way, is <laughs> just to ask, is your group the only true church? Because if they say yes, that's a red alert going off right there. Because if you ask an evangelical Christian if his particular denomination is the only true church, his answer, hopefully, is no, of course not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not about our group being the only true group. We're about Jesus being the only true Lord, Savior, and God incarnate. Mm-hmm. So it's all for us, it's about Christ. It's not about us and our group. Now, what group you're part of does matter in that if it's not centered on the biblical Christ, you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would want to know, what do you believe about Jesus? And it could be very quickly ascertained that this is a problem. So they could say, well, we think Jesus is Michael the archangel, or we think Jesus is the firstborn spirit son of heavenly father and heavenly mother, or we think Jesus is a great teacher and guru, but not divine. They might be forthcoming and tell you what they believe in such a way that you can quickly see that there's a problem. Or to that point, positively, you know, just having, and this goes back to the importance of being a student of the scriptures and understanding what it teaches, but just having clarity in your mind that the scriptures teach that Jesus was completely divine, eternal God, uh, but also completely human. Yes. Took on human nature and was united with his divine nature in one person. So two natures, one person, both those being important, two natures and one person. Right. This is what Christians call the incarnation. And so, yeah, anything anything that deviates from that is a cult. <laughs> That's right. So various groups that will use very biblical sounding language, so it may take some questioning not in an interrogation type questioning, but just sure. friendly conversation. Sure. Could you explain what that means in your group? Because, uh, you know, I'm not sure I understand exactly where you're coming from. 
So a simple example would be almost everyone will say they believe Jesus is the son of God. Mm. Almost everyone. Muslims won't, but I mean, almost everybody else will. The question is, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So you could ask, you know, I believe Jesus is the son of God too. Could you tell me what that means in your religion's understanding? And if they say, well, it means that Jesus was a man that God chose to bring us salvation, that's something like the Unitarian answer. Mm -hmm. If they say, well, Jesus is the only human that was born to an immortal father and a mortal mother, (laughs) that's Mormonism again, that's a serious problem. If they say, well, he's the son of God because he's the first and only creature that Jehovah God made directly, that's Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's clearly not what the Bible teaches, contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses' attempts to use the Bible to support it. Uh, So you can ask questions to get at exactly what they mean when they affirm something that's true. So they're affirming Jesus, Son of God. Yes, that's right, but what does that mean? And if they mean something very different by it, then that's still a problem. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned two. I I think there might be a third that's maybe less important, but it's come up a few times. I want to call it out. It seems that a lot of these groups have either another authoritative text yeah. Book of Mormon, for example, right. or they've got their own translation of the Bible, you know, the Jehovah's Witness translation, for instance, um, uh, New World Translation. Is that what it is? Yeah. 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 So uh, that seems to be another question, perhaps, of what do you look to for your source of knowledge of who God is? Right, right. It is, is my, you know, my looking just to the New American Standard Bible okay, or do I need something else? Right. Or, you know, what pick, pick your translation, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I would say most of these groups will try at least on the first pass to get away with saying, oh, we just go by the Bible. Hmm. We just believe what the Bible teaches. Well, what does the Bible teach you about where you get your understanding of the Bible. Mm. See, now now we're penetrating a little bit more. And so they may say, well, we get our understanding of what the Bible means from carefully studying the Bible, along with other Christians, and uh, doing our best to understand it. We're, we're not going to be perfect about it. Well, now we're sounding pretty good. But if they say, well, the only way you can really understand the Bible is through the teaching of God's appointed church leader, teacher, prophet, etc., scripture, extra scripture, or whatever, then you've got a problem. So even religions that say scripture is the only infallible or absolutely trustworthy word of God in written form, very often you will find groups that will say that, and then it turns out there's an extra biblical something or other that is the key to reading the Bible correctly. Yeah, that word key. And I think of Mary Baker Eddy, right, with Christian Scientists. I think her book was something about the key to the scriptures, right? Yes, a science and health with key to the scriptures. Right. Yes. Uh, Now, every theological test you could apply to a religious group to see whether it's heretical, Christian science would pass as a a heretical religion. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's got an extra biblical leader whose word cannot be questioned, Mary Baker Eddy. It can't be changed. It can't be modified. It can't be supplemented. They can't add anything to what Eddy taught. That's basically written in stone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) before she died. Uh, Mm -hmm. They've got extra biblical text the science and health book. Uh, They're the only true church, so you've got to get the truth from them. Now, because it's calcified for the last hundred plus years since she died, and because of some very destructive teachings about medicine, their numbers have dwindled dramatically. They used to be such a big group that Anthony Hukuma could title his book, The Four Major Cults, and include Christian Science as one of them. Hmm. That was 60 years ago. It's no longer the case. They've got, what, a tenth or a twentieth of the membership they had back then? Okay. Might even be worse than that. But they still have those reading rooms all over the country in the big cities. And by campuses. Yeah. So they're still around. So people still need to know about them. But 
Mary Baker Eddy claimed to believe the Bible, but then when you read the fine print, it turns out she really didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, Genesis contains error when it teaches that God made the world with material substance, because matter is not real, according to Mary Baker Eddy's idealist philosophy. Mm, Yeah, the Gnosticism reinvented, right? Or warmed over. Yes. Let me make an observation here, an observation that I had pointed out to me. I had a class in cults and seminary, and my professor was actually a historian, historical theologian. And the reason he was able to have such expertise in modern-day cults is that they are, I don't know if I can say all, most, maybe all, are simply repackaged heresies of yes. past centuries. Sure. <laughs> Just has its its different iterations through the centuries and these different aberrant beliefs. Yeah, so Arianism uh, in the 4th century has been revived in a way by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. and some other groups. Mormonism is perhaps the, the most creative and novel of the heretical groups uh, to come around in the last couple centuries, but it has elements of many different heresies from antiquity, but it's it's very creative and uh <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, is it tritheism? Uh, yeah, kind of. It's also polytheism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, sure. it's difficult to define sure. because it's so complex. Mm-hmm. Tie something else together for me historically. These three large cults that have U.S. origins, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, and Christian science, they seem to, if I recall correctly, all arise from the same region in the same time, upstate New York in the mid-1800s. Is that right? Uh, Christian science, I think, is uh, more in the Boston area originally. Okay. But yes, in fact, an awful lot of these groups do originate from upstate New York. Why is that? Well, it was known as the Burned-Over District. It was an area that had experienced wave after wave after wave of revivalism. And early 19th century America became a cauldron for religious experimentation because America was itself a brand new kind of experiment in religious freedom. Mm. People could believe anything that they wanted. And they did. (laughs) As soon as the Bill of Rights became law, and the United States became an established uh, new nation, different religions began popping up. And they were free to believe whatever they wanted. They were free to teach and practice almost anything they wanted. And they did. So there's an incredible diversity of groups that come out of that region. Of course, in the first half of the 19th century, most of America is on the eastern seaboard and gradually moving out west. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you see a lot of these religions starting out in the eastern part of the United States, and especially in the Northeast. And so if we broaden a little bit beyond upstate New York to, say, Northeast, that includes Christian science. So a lot of these groups originated from that environment in which people were free to try out new beliefs, argue for new religious ideas. They were publishing magazines Many of these religious groups actually start as magazines. That may sound odd to us today, but Jehovah's Witnesses really started as the Watchtower magazine. It was called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. Mm. So like a modern day website that's put up and people start following, right? Yeah, exactly. It's It's a great analogy. So they start off as a magazine in the 1800s. And then they become a religion after that. So Russell started the magazine in 1879 and incorporated the Watchtower Society in the 1880s. Mm. And that's a typical pattern for many of these groups. Or they start off as a book and become a religion. And that's what happens with Mormonism. That's what happens with Christian science. They publish a book. That book becomes kind of the second Bible for the group. And they find themselves organizing into a formal religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they started off with the publication. And of course, the 19th century, you have this explosion 
of printing and publishing sure. that becomes possible because it becomes cheaper to publish books and magazines than ever before. In fact, I don't know that you even have much in the way of a magazine until the 19th century, right. uh, uh, what we would call a magazine. And they're printing these periodicals and these books, and they're disseminating them, and in some cases, giving them away to spread their beliefs. And people latch on and they say, hey, we got a bunch of people here. We've got to get organized. Who's going to take care of this stuff? And that's how it happens. That's really helpful. Uh, and by the way, I am dating myself saying you'd put up a website. No, now these days <laughs> you'd put up a YouTube channel. So <laughs> right, right. I correct myself. <laughs> um, but it's interesting you mentioned the role of revivalism in this, in the burned out district. Again, an area that evangelists had gone crisscrossing, yes. having these tent revivals, right. which had a positive effect in a sense of a lot of people heard the gospel and came to faith, but they did tend to have an anti-intellectual strain of, look, I can't explain any of this. I can't make sense of it. Just come forward, come forward and receive Christ. And so I think a lot of people came to faith during that era, but they had no teaching at the moment of their conversion, of why they were making this decision, it was more emotional. They just had this stirring, and they wanted to go forward, and it was more music and, you know, whatever. But then they um, they didn't have a chance to get grounded in biblical truth. And so it was, I think, easy to latch onto these other ideas, because they didn't understand that Scripture teaches Jesus as two persons, one nature. So, okay, I I, I like what I hear over here, right? Right. Along with the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening is what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Along with that, the late 18th century and early 19th century saw the rise of, well, it's been called different things, primitivism, restorationism. I think restorationism is probably the best term here. And the idea is that Christianity needed more than a reformation. It needed a restoration. Mm. We have to start all over. There's no true church on the earth today that's teaching the true gospel, and we need to reestablish Christianity from ground zero okay. and build it up on the basis of a brand new start with a new scripture or a new prophet or a new Bible study or whatever it is. You know, it. We're going to start it over. So these groups typically think of themselves as the only true church because there was no church, according to them, that was a true church prior to them coming along. Mm. Or in some cases, they will moderate that a little bit and say, well, we have the fullness of true Christianity. Uh, we're the, the only faithful church. Mm. So if you want to be faithful and not be judged with Babylon the Great, you got to join us. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of teaching was very common in this restorationist movement, people were looking for the true church. They were very often looking for it as something that would be an experience-based religion, which you had visions or dreams or supernatural manifestations or whatever it might be that would be the impetus for the religion. And so many of these groups got started with that. On the other extreme, there were very rationalistic-oriented people who said, I can't accept Christianity the way it's been taught. It needs to make sense to me, and I need to be able to have something I can latch onto in the Bible that, that hasn't been taught, that will kind of give us a new start. Jehovah's Witnesses is the classic example. They basically said, we're Bible students, but we don't believe the Bible teaches all these complex, mysterious things like the Trinity and the Incarnation and things that we don't think are reasonable like hell, predestination. They had a list of these things. Russell did, the founder. He associated with people that said they believed the Bible, didn't believe those things. He says, oh, okay, I, I can be a Christian now because I, I don't have to believe these things. And so really the religion was founded on this premise that in order to be acceptable, Christianity has to be reasonable to me. Mm. It has to make sense to us, and we have to be able to figure it out. So that's another form of Christianity that is aberrant or heretical that begins to pop up quite a bit in the 19th century. And this is really on the foundation of the Unitarian tradition that goes back to the 16th century, all the way up to the present of people who said, I can't believe the Bible if it's unreasonable. So out goes the Trinity. 
maybe even outgo the devil and, and angels because uh, it's it's too supernaturalistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Christadelphians, for example, are anti-Trinitarian, and they don't believe in a personal devil, because a personal devil to them is it's an irrational belief. Sure. Okay. Let me ask you a very practical question. Let's say a student finds himself in a group like this and listens to the podcast and starts to ask these questions and realize, oh, wow, I've gotten myself into something that's not quite what I thought it was, or maybe his or her roommate is, um, is, is, is is in this kind of situation. How do you get yourself out once you're in? (laughs) Well, of course it depends on how, how deeply you're in. Sure. Uh, If you've been baptized, for example, into a heretical religion, you may find it difficult to get out because you may find that your relationships are all tangled up with this particular group. That's all your friends now, because in some cases, they encourage that. They encourage you to find most or all your friends in their group. Yeah, which is another red flag, by the way. If early on, that's starting to happen. Right. And it's usually not done in a sinister fashion. It's just you want to stick around people that think like you. And that's normal up to a point. But when your thinking is narrowed to what the cult says, then that creates relational difficulties. So Mm -hmm. what I would say is if somebody finds themselves in a group that seems to be heretical or cultic in some fashion, they're going to have to be intentional about finding some help from somebody outside the group. I would actually, unless this seems like a group that's got some criminal element to it, I think you would go to somebody in the group and say, look, I've heard some things that make me worry about my participation in this group. But one thing that I can say pretty confidently, and that is if this is a good group, you would be happy with me investigating it, learning as much about it, finding out what your history is, what your origins are, what your teachings historically have been, comparing Mm -hmm. them with scripture and talking to some people even outside the group to get an outsider's perspective, Mm -hmm. not because I'm trying to prove anything, but because I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Would you agree that those are all good things to do? And if they say no, that's another red flag right there. It's a big one. Mm -hmm. It's the big one that's being waved at you. Yeah. Then you're just going to have to pull out and say, look, you may disagree and you're free to disagree, but I have to do what I think is right, and I'm going to have to look into this. I'm going to have to take a step back. I'm not saying I'm quitting or that I'm leaving, but I'm going to take a step back and take a good look at this and try to find out more. Because if I'm going to be all in, I want it to be an informed decision. I want to know what I've gotten myself into. Mm -hmm. And if it's good, then I'm going to be stronger for going through that process. If it's not true then I need to pull out. And so I, either way, I can't lose. People need to understand this. This is a no-lose situation. If you're in a bad group and you find that out, that's to your benefit. If you're in a good group and you learn more about it and you find out what a great group it is, <laughs> you haven't lost anything. Mm-hmm. But if the people in the group oppose you looking at it objectively and pursuing the facts that in and of itself is a very bad sign. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then I would say that there are people outside the group that you could turn to for help in getting information, in uh, getting counseled as to how to deal with your relationships with these people. So there's there's a variety of resources available. A lot of it's online for free. Good. Let's talk about that. What, what are some of the top, just give me couple, three websites that the student could go to? I'm going to mention two of these. Okay. One is Watchman Fellowship. Their website, I think, is just watchman.org. Okay. Watchman Fellowship is a useful site to check because they have an A to Z reference work of various groups that are in this category of concern. And so you can read one of their profiles on the group And it may be something so obscure that most of us have never heard of it. You would not believe some of the groups that I read about. Uh But you can check that out. And then if you want to get some in-depth study of certain select commonly encountered groups and 
biblical instruction about what Scripture teaches about God, Jesus, salvation, etc. Let me mention my website, irr.org. That's for Institute for Religious Research. And we have a lot of articles just on basic things about the Bible. Why do we have the books in the Bible that we have? Has the Bible been copied reliably? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? Did Jesus really exist? Did he rise from the dead? All those kinds of very basic questions, Mm -hmm. but also dealing with what do these different religious groups say about Jesus? What do they say about the Bible? Mm -hmm. Why isn't their doctrine the right doctrine about these things? And the two that we have the most resources on are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, but Mm -hmm. you can learn a lot that's applicable to other groups by studying these because they often make the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Good. Really, really helpful. Appreciate uh, in really practical terms helping students do their research, right? Uh, understand what they got into. And like you say, if it's a legitimate group, the research will help them confirm that yeah, this is different than what I grew up with, but this is a group that really does right. believe the core teachings of Scripture or not so much. Right. I have to tell you this funny story. After I became an evangelical, uh, when I was away at college for a year, I guess I wrote a letter to my parents telling them that I'd become a child of God. And they thought that I had joined the children of God cult. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't oh, even know. I had never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. And so I explained to them, no, 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 no. It's not the name of the group. It's just what the Bible yeah. says. And, yeah. But anyway, uh, so they, I don't know if they thought I had, but maybe they were worried that I had. So I, oh, yeah. no, I'm not, not oh, part yeah. of that group. Well, I had a somewhat similar experience. I, I came to faith in high school uh, through a student ministry. And uh, one of the leaders after a meeting, I was a week old, two weeks older than the Lord, <laughs> Uh, he brought me home and dropped me off and the driveway. And it, this was in 1980. So just, just as the 70s are closing. And he looked like somebody out of the 70s with the big hair and, and, and beard and all. Right. And my folks saw him in the driveway as he pulled out. And they thought, what is this my son is into? This guy looks like he's some hippie from some cult. And we got to put the kibosh on this. So... <laughs> it took a while for me. First of all, I had to make sure, okay, is this a legit group? Because I didn't know enough to even say, hey, here's what they believe. And then uh, to help my parents realize that, hey, this is this is okay. So same thing. <laughs> right. One other thing I want to mention about Watchman Fellowship is that they also have chapters and representatives in different parts of the country. And they would be a good resource to ask, is there somebody near me that I could talk to about this particular group I'm in? They would probably have better connections than we would for that particular scenario. Good. And that would be helpful, especially if there are these local or regional groups that might not show up on some national list. But I suspect there are those kind of cultic groups that are just in a certain region of the country. Yes, that's true. Well, Rob, this is so helpful to me and I know our listeners. Is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up? Thanks. I I would like to encourage people to read the Bible, study the Bible. Biblical illiteracy is an open invitation to false doctrine. Mm -hmm. It's an open invitation to false religion. It's also an open invitation to losing faith altogether and becoming a a skeptic or an atheist. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't understand what Christianity really teaches, what the Bible really says, you're going to be prey for a lot of really poor criticisms of biblical Christianity based simply on not knowing what it is. So the more we can grow in our understanding, in a mature understanding of the Bible, the better off we're going to be. And it's not just studying the Bible, but studying the Bible in a fashion that avoids this kind of extremist thinking that we've been warning about. My goal isn't to defend my denomination. It's not to defend my pastor's teaching. It's not to criticize it either. It's to get at what the truth is, to be not ideologically driven by, this is what I have to argue for all the time, but Mm -hmm. learning what Scripture teaches, growing in it, understanding it, I would also urge Christians to find some good resources on 
how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, mm -hmm. so that you're not studying the Bible in a way that's sort of doomed to fail, uh, because you're looking for things that just aren't going to be there. That's right. And you suggest a good resource on that. The website Bible.org is a good resource for learning about the Bible and about Bible study. We have resources on our website, IRR.org, specifically about biblical interpretation. Mm. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is really my area of, of mm -hmm. academic expertise, is in biblical studies and in particular biblical interpretation, or what people like to call hermeneutics, mm -hmm. uh, the interpretation of Scripture. So we have some resources there that will introduce people to basic principles of interpretation, give some references of things that they can go look up if they want to go into it in more depth. But it's crucial not to have a very narrow doctrinaire approach to interpreting the Bible that guarantees the outcome, right? <laughs> but to have an approach that says, I want to understand Scripture and all of its richness and complexity. I want to understand that the books of the Bible talk about things in somewhat different ways because they're written at different times by different authors. They use different wording, but it's consistent. So appreciating these kinds of differences, they shouldn't be stumbling blocks to accepting the Bible as God's word. They should be simply cautions against overreaching what that means mm -hmm. in a way that imposes the judgment of error on things that are not error at all. Perfect. Rob, thanks for your time. Thanks for your ministry. This has just been rich. I appreciate you just taking the time to help us learn to love God fully with heart, mind, soul, and strength and avoid the many errors out there on campus and in our culture more broadly. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.